morning. It is Wednesday, January 3rd, 2018. Happy New Year, everyone. This is the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. Today, we're going to be visiting with Tom Hoops, the writer-in-resident and vice president of college relations at Benedictine College and the author of What Pope Francis Really Said, Words of Comfort and Challenge. Our show today is being pre-recorded, so we won't be able to take any phone calls. Still, thank you for listening. Want to welcome everyone listening to us here in the Bryan College Station area on KEDC 88.5 FM, Hearn Bryan College Station, and also our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM, Lorena, Waco, and also our station, KNIF 107.9 FM in Palestine. Happy New Year to all of you, and I want to also say a Happy New Year to our general manager and wonderful producer, Thaddeus Romanski. Good morning, Thaddeus. Good morning, Deacon Mike. Thank you very much for those New Year wishes, man. That was just very clean uh, shout outs to the uh, radio stations around our network. Thank you. I am finally starting to get used to all those. And of course, at the rate that Red Sea is expanding, my <laughs> memory is going to have to expand with it if we can st- uh, keep adding radio stations. But wow. it's a wonderful growth line here for Red Sea Radio. We're reaching more and more of Texas and the word of God is getting spread everywhere. We're we're doing the best we can. And please keep us in your prayers, folks, as we uh, explore these new opportunities that are presenting themselves in 2018. And we'll keep you abreast of everything that that happens as it as it can be made uh, made public. So what do we got on tap today, Deacon? Well, uh, in a little while, we'll be talking to Tom Hoops, but before then, uh, I did want to talk a little bit about coming up this weekend, we have the second annual Red Sea Family Retreat. Yes, we do. Want to talk a little bit about that, Thaddeus? I'd love to. I would love to, to encourage uh, listeners to to make those last minute registrations. We still, we still want you. We're going to have a great keynote speakers. Greg and Julie Alexander are going to be coming in to speak on our theme of being present to our families through the real presence, connecting a devotion to an awareness of the real presence in the Eucharist and how that can inform our and better our relationships within our family and being more present to one another. And I think it's a nice little play on words uh, coming out of the Christmas Christmas Day with, we're not talking about presents but rather presence and how we can be more present to, to one another. And it was really neat um, back in December uh, when Pam Marvin interviewed Bishop Michael Sis and he talk, talked about the incarnation. He mentioned in his interview uh, a quote from Pope Pius XII, a mystery of presence without end is the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Beautiful quote. Yeah. And how, so I I think that's wonderful to kind of contemplate on and about how that presence of Christ in the Eucharist, if it's a mystery of presence without end, it continues through time and through space after you've received Christ and taken him into you. And it should, that his presence should live on and does live on in your interactions with, with one another, with, with um, your family members, with the people you come across. It's one of the beautiful concepts in our Catholic faith, that sense that 
Bishop uh, Robert Barron refers to it as co-inherence. Mm-hmm. The fact that God allows us to become part of him through the Eucharist. It's not that we become something different, but we become better versions of what we were intended to be right. in the first place. Right, right. And so the Eucharist provides the nourishment that we need to be who God wants us to be. Mm-hmm. And so he continues to be in us, not just as the body of Christ, as the community, but also us being images of that Christ to others. And I think that I I fail so often to uh, really look at other people, to really, really look at other people and say consciously to myself, that is Christ standing before me. So how should I treat them? And I, I, I believe that if I can, if I can do better at being more aware of his presence in the Eucharist, I'm going to more readily recognize Christ in the other person, especially I hope in my, my family and my, my spouse. What do you think about that? Uh, I think that is right in line with, I just saw an article on a comment made by Pope Francis when they asked him, what kind of image do you have of yourself? And he Mm. said that, well, I try not to look at myself in the mirror because that is the road to narcissism, that I start getting enamored with the image of myself. What I try to see is the image of Christ in others. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly where you're going with this. We, especially in our culture, become so absorbed with what image am I projecting to the right. world out there right. that we stop seeing the image of Christ in the person standing in front of us. Yeah. And so, yes, uh, good point, Thaddeus, that, you know, we need to, all of us, not just you, <laughs> need to d- take a little bit more time seeing Christ in the person standing in front of us. Yeah, and I think I so need that with my with my children and my wife, who those are the people that I interact with on the, on a day, day in and day out. And, you know, they see me at my, they see me at my best, but boy, they sure see me at my worst a lot, a lot more than anyone else. And I want to cut down on, on those times of seeing me at my worst. And so I think if, if you're, if you're, you know, liking what I'm laying down here, um, please come to the retreat guys. Um, the practicalities of the matter are, that it's on January 5th and 6th. So it's, it's this weekend, it's Friday evening. There's a, a BYOB meet and greet, and then uh, bring enough, bring a meal for your family that, that you can, it's like the size of what would feed your family and to share. So it's kind of a potluck meal that we'll have some uh, time to get to know one another. The families on the retreat on Friday night, we'll have some icebreaker uh, kind of activities. Then we're going to have adoration uh, led by, Deacon Mike Beauvais right here, and we'll have a little bit of uh, song to follow that, and then benediction, and then we'll come back Saturday morning. We'll have mass at St. Anthony's. The Alexanders will speak. Uh, they're going to talk about their story of going from rock bottom in their marriage to uh, the best version of them of themselves as a married couple, and they're going to put it in light of our of our theme. It's a, it's a story that maybe a lot of people who know who they are have heard before, but they're going to put it put it under new lenses for for our theme. And I think that's going to be really 
Excellent. And I'm excited to hear what they have to say. Then Greg is going to speak to the men in the afternoon. Julie's going to speak to the women. And then we're going to have our breakout sessions like we did last year. Uh, those will happen twice. Um, so if you if a couple came and they split up, they could hear all four breakout sessions in the course of of the day, um, and they that by sharing with one another what what they heard. So um, Angie Bird's going to be back. She's going to talk about living the liturgical year in the home, specifically Lent. Adam Earhart, who's a campus minister here at St. Mary's, he and his wife are going to speak on. They have a really intriguing topic: um, parenting as children of God. So. Being parents uh, in light of or with the kind of keeping the knowledge of that we are children of God in the in the forefront of your mind when you are acting in the role of parent. I think that's going to be really interesting. Um, then uh, Julia and Bronius Motokaitis are going to lead a breakout session. They're a local couple that's very involved with uh, the Focolare, and I'm sure they're going to bring that charism of unity that the Focolare movement is so known, known for to their presentation. And then finally, Allison and Seth Sullivan are going to speak. Um, as a, as a, our fourth breakout session. And they were a very late ad. Uh, they were generous and, gr- and gracious to, to come on board and fill that fourth slot for us. So at the time of recording, I don't have an outline of what their talk's going to be in front of me, but I know they're going to knock it out of the park because I've, I've heard both such great things about both of them. Um, when they, when they do speak chapel of divine mercy at 3 PM on Saturday as well. And, We'll have breakfast and lunch catered on Saturday. It's $40 per family. I think at the time of this listening, we might have passed the threshold for the early bird $40 rate, so it might be up to to 55 But if you are in a situation where you want to come, but there are some financial stresses that you feel like you might not be able to, to swing that, get in touch with me, Thaddeus at RedSeaRadio.org, or call the studio and we will make arrangements for you. No, no couple will be turned away. And we also, I want to also emphasize, and you can help me out with this, articulating this deacon, the, the church proposes a, a norm of the husband and wife who have children of, of their own and that permanence of the marriage bond, but, but circumstances and our own acts of omission and commission can, can work to undo that bond or fray that bond. So we still want people who are parenting in a single parent situation to come, grandparents who might be raising their grandchildren, um, widows, widowers, married couples without children. Uh, I think engaged couples could even profit from from coming to this. So if you're hearing those words and, and some of the topics that we're talking about are stirring your heart and you want to be a part of it, please come. Don't feel like you're barred by the, the fact that it's a, a family retreat. Well, that uh, and how does that sound? It sounds uh, great, Thaddeus, because family, especially in our culture, doesn't always look like the ideal, but that doesn't change the fact that it's still family. Right. And uh, being part of the Red Sea radio family. Right. Listening to this program, if you feel that you are called to attend, and especially this being first of the year, all, uh, people making New Year's resolutions all the time, right. why not make a resolution that you're going to build your family faith and see you know, what that may look like and how your life may look with a little more emphasis on God in our lives 
And so never going to hurt, never going to hurt, always going to help. Right. Right. So that's the, that's the major details. And thanks for giving me such a, a long time to speak about the retreat. So come this weekend, January 5th and 6th, uh, it's at St. Anthony's. You can register online at redcradio.org slash retreat. Thank you, Thaddeus. One thing I wanted to touch on today, because uh, on Monday, January 1st, yeah, it is normally a holy day of obligation. We normally celebrate the Holy Mary, Mother of God, on January 1st. But since this year it fell on a Monday, the holy day of obligation was abrogated and uh, but uh, most uh, parishes probably still had a mass that day because it is for such a wonderful occasion. Uh, and if you made it out, that's wonderful. But I thought we'd take just a few minutes uh, in our program this morning talking about that whole idea of Mary, the mother of God, because one, there's always that notion that uh, the Catholic Church puts Mary in a position that she really doesn't belong uh, right. Mother of God. I mean, is she eternal? And um, so I wanted to touch a little bit on this uh, and emphasize the fact that first of, this is not Mariology. This is Christology. The whole question of whether or not Mary was the mother of God came up because the challenge was that Nestorians believed that Jesus couldn't possibly have been God because he was a man. Mm -hmm. And so their notion was that Jesus just occupied the body of a man. So they said that Mary was the mother of Jesus. Sure. Right. But Mary was never the mother of God. Well, from the very beginning, that did not sit well with the church. Because we have always taught from the very beginning from Scripture that Jesus was both God and man. Because if there is no incarnation, there is no salvation. Mm. And so the church has always taught from the very beginning uh, that Mary was the mother of God because Jesus was God from the moment of the immaculate of the uh, incarnation. Right. And so um, we see this from the very beginning of the church. It's been documented starting in the mid third century. Uh, there is a prayer called the uh, Subtuum Presidium, mm -hmm. which we which, prayed at our benefit dinner, which we prayed at our benefit dinner, which is the first prayer asking for Mary's protection as the mother of God. Mm -hmm. They use the words Theotoke, which is the derivative of the word Theotokos, which was used by the Council of Ephesus in 431 to define Mary as the mother of God. It's Greek translation is right. God bearer because the word they use is not exactly translatable to mother. It's more parent, but um, the idea that Mary is the mother of God is vital to our understanding of salvation history. Right. And so when we hear that word, we sometimes think, oh, it's the church talking about Mary, when in fact it's talking about Jesus. It is talking about who do we teach 
that Jesus was. Right. Who do we know Jesus as? Right. And if he is not fully God and fully man, all we talk about as far as salvation history doesn't fit together. Right. You know, I think to kind of close us out and to segue us into the, to our interview with Tom Hoops, you know, last year at the when Pope Francis visited Fatima, one of the th- striking things that he said didn't get really a lot of reportage, but he said to be Christian is to be Marian. Yes. And one of the reasons he says that is because all, like you're saying, all the Marian doctrines, holding on to those Marian doctrines actually helps you hold on more firmly to the truths about Christ. So if you let go of mother of God and you just devalue or demote Mary to, well, you know, she was this, she was the mother of Jesus and she was this nice peasant girl. Well, that's how you slip away from hanging on to the fact that he's both God and man. Yes. And this is uh, something that we as Catholics need to be aware of and be proud of that we over the years have so diligently maintained that understanding of who Jesus is through our understanding of who Mary is. Right. And so when you hear these things, you know, Marian feast days, almost all of them are result in some way or another of the church's maintaining the divinity and humanity. Right of her son. Right. Right. So that's a, I think that's a great kind of way to wrap up this first segment as we look forward to your, your interview with Tom hoops about uh, what Pope Francis really says. Yes. And so we were going to take a short break. We will see everyone on the other side. And again, happy new year. We will see you in a few minutes. Back on the Red Sea Roundup, as I mentioned earlier, this segment of the show is pre-recorded, so we won't be able to take any callers. And also, as I mentioned, our guest today is Tom Hoops, the writer-in-residence and vice president of college relations at Benedictine College, where he teaches in the journalism and mass communication department. He also writes weekly for the National Catholic Register and Alicia. And... Uh, he used to be the executive editor of the National Catholic Register. Welcome, Tom. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Just fine. I also failed to mention that you are the author of the book, What Pope Francis Really Said, Words of Comfort and Challenge. And we had you on a while back to talk about your book, but we wanted to bring you back and talk a little bit about the things going on in the Catholic world and get your perspective on them. Before Absolutely. we start Happy on to be here. 
I am glad you're here. Before we start, what exactly does a writer in residence do at a university or college? <laughs> okay. Well, that's a good question. Um, I have a number of titles here. As you mentioned, I'm vice president of college relations, which means sort of director of marketing. Uh, but that also means that uh, when I write, which I do journalistically ever since I started at the National Catholic Register and in the rest of my writing career, I need some point of separation between my job as a spokesperson for Benedictine College in Kansas and my job as a journalist. So writer in residence is me with my um, journalist hat on rather than me as speaking on behalf of the college. So it means that the college allows you time to do the other part of your job and uh you actually have that as part of your responsibilities at the university or the college. That's right. So it's kind of a dream job. I get to teach students. I get to write stuff. I get to uh, work in the marketing office. I've got the best of three or four or five now different worlds that I'm involved in here at the at Benedictine. What got you started in writing, especially from a Catholic perspective? Well, it was, got me started when I was a child. I had a, a Mexican grandfather who was a big reader and a big writer. He loved John Henry Newman. He introduced me to Chesterton. Uh, he was kind of a, a he was wide, wide ranging in his tastes. He told me one of my grandkids should be an author, and I've picked you. And so he got me interested in writing early on. I don't if I didn't turn out to have a talent for it, I suppose I wouldn't have followed through, but I turned out to have kind of a talent for it. Uh, so I've been writing ever since. Uh, and I underwent a profound reversion in college at the St. Ignatius Institute, uh, which is in San, was in San Francisco. It is no longer. Uh, where I discovered that there was truth, that we could know it, that uh, people were desperately in need of it, and I decided to spend whatever energies I could uh, trying to promote it as much as possible. And there you have the origin story of Tom Hoops for what it's worth. <laughs> the thing that piqued my interest was your mention that you came to the understanding that there is such a thing as truth. And especially in our culture where so much emphasis now is placed that we're basically the authors of our own truth. Was that a revelation for you in contrast to what you thought you were hearing or did you th suspect that was always the back of your mind, that there has to be uh, objective truth? Well, I was raised in a fairly secular environment. Um, I didn't practice my faith in high school. My mom did, but I kind of avoided it somehow. Uh, I ended up um, having a profound experience in high school, even before I discovered the, my Catholic faith again, where I realized that uh, I was pro-life through it all, and I thought, well, if there is no such thing as truth, as they keep telling me at school, then that means I can't judge Hitler, I can't judge, uh, I, I can't judge anybody, and I, and I realized it meant that I couldn't say that the unborn child was a human being, and I wasn't really willing to go there. I thought, well, that I know is true. So from there. Uh, I built the notion, well, there must, you must be able to say stuff is true, which is one reason I've been so powerful, uh, so committed to uh, the pro-life movement throughout my career. I think it's an extremely powerful issue 
because once you start, once you realize that the unborn is a human person, is a human being, and with rights to be defended, then all sorts of things follow from that. An unseen person is suddenly uh, a real person. Unseen truths can suddenly be true. And it seems like a lot can be built on this one belief uh, in the humanity of the unborn. A lot can be undone by deciding to disregard the unborn, and a lot can be redone by discovering the, the, the reality of the right to life once again. And I think this is one of the points so many writers in the uh, pro-life movement make, that if you get this point wrong, it is so easy to get most other social issue points wrong also, because so much of it permeates from our understanding of what a person is and where we get our dignity from. Yeah, so I think it's, I personally think it's a strategically brilliant and but also strategically disastrous move on the devil's part to get people to uh, be willing to kill unborn children. I mean, it's strategically brilliant if you're the devil because you're striking at the very heart of so many good things in our lives, family, motherhood, uh, defense of the weak. Uh, by this one, this one link uh, in the chain, you just undo so much. But uh, strategically, it's also uh, a difficult thing for him because once you reestablish the right to life, which protecting a baby is really not that hard to convince somebody of if you are given the right circumstances, then it undo undoes so much of the other uh, garbage that he tried to attach to that link. Uh, so I, 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 that's why I think that it's the issue of our time. It's at the heart of so much more that we uh, discuss, and and, that, and that's why I personally focus on it so much in my person in my career. In a way, some of the things that we were going to talk about today serve in part as a distraction to a focus on some of the important issues. And while I'm not saying what we're going to talk about in a minute is unimportant, what I'm saying is there are issues that are far more immediate because they're already taking place. Uh, one of the things is there's a lot of things in the news right now about issues related to Amoris Laetitia. And uh, this is one of the things that, you know, we hear on the news a lot as to so-and-so said this or the Pope said this and so forth. Would you give us a synopsis just basically of what this means for a lay Catholic when we hear things on the news about, you know, what something means in relation to church teaching? Absolutely. Well, first of all, you have to be very, very suspect of what you read in the news, uh, particularly in the secular news, but also sometimes uh, in uh, Catholic press, because for one thing, you're seeing only a piece of a larger issue. For another thing, you're looking at one person's interpretation of a larger issue. Uh, so I think it's a tragedy that so many Catholics take a headline about Pope Francis, for instance, and assume that, it, that there must be some truth to it. It must be a really bad thing. Uh, as I wrote my book, What Pope Francis Really Said, I discovered over and over again that totally different stories could have been written about so much that had happened in his uh, pontificate. 
So, for instance, the who am I to judge comment about homosexuality, the story could have been written that he was strongly, uh, you know, repeating in different words what Benedict and John Paul had said. That he was uh, saying that if you're part of a homosexual agenda, then there, he has a problem with you. But if you're just a personal struggler who's trying to come to grips with church teaching, he doesn't. Uh, so many different stories could be written, but the story that was written was uh, broadcast and and believed by many Catholics was that Pope Francis is suddenly somehow okay with homosexual acts. Well, it's the same thing with any issue. Uh, Amoris Laetitia included, there are some who are simply under the impression that the Pope is now allowing those who are divorced and remarried to receive communion without either annulling their marriage or uh, going to the sacrament of reconciliation and determining to live uh, as brother and sister with their new spouse. He has not changed that rule. Uh, and, and I think it does a disservice to our friends and family if we promote the idea that he has or react to what the news is as if he has. Uh, I think it only causes uh, people to be more disturbed, uh, and less attached to the faith and less likely to understand what the truth really is in the matter. Uh, I, so before I told, talked to you a little bit about this before, and uh, one thing I want to make clear is that uh, Catholics have a very clear path in front of them, even if the Pope is wrong about something. Now, the Pope, when he speaks infallibly, when he defines a dogma in a very specific way, and when he does it in communion with all the bishops, uh, we have to believe those things. So the, the Immaculate Conception, uh, even the teaching on contraception can be said to have been proclaimed in this type of manner because it's, uh, it meets a number of criteria. Uh, but when the Pope includes a footnote in a document the way he did this time, and in a document which points out that uh, in, in the very document, it says neither the synod nor this document can be expected to provide a new set of general rules. Uh, and he also says in the document that personal discernment can never undermine what is said in the gospel. Uh, so he can make suggestions in this document that he's already said, if they're against canon law, they don't apply because I can't go against canon law. And if they're against the gospel, they don't apply because I can't go against the gospel. So in those instances, the Pope can say something that can be wrong, can be mistaken. Uh, God knows that we've had some terrible popes in the past who, who did some things that uh, the church uh, you know, has been embarrassed by. Uh, so popes are not perfect. They don't say that not every word that falls from their lips is absolutely true and to be taken to the bank. And popes can say things that are wrong. What I would argue is that if the pope does say something that's wrong, and I'm not yet arguing whether or not he does so in Amoris Laetitia, but if he ever does, lay Catholics have a very uh, clear path set out for them of what we can do. Uh, what we should do is, first of all, point out all the right things that he said. So the Pope has said over and over again that the indissolubility of marriage is a sacrament that will never change. As a sacrament, marriage cannot be dissolved. Uh, and that's what I try to do in my book, is point out over and over again in the book where he said exactly what the Catholic Church teaches on a number of issues. If you've read the book, 
it covers 10 different hot button issues, including homosexuality, abortion, immigration, uh, and marriage. And it lays out the Pope saying over and over again, exactly what every other Pope and exactly what the catechism says about each of those issues. And I think as the world is kind of busy creating this record, false record of what the Pope is changing, we need to be busy creating the real record that the church is going to need. Uh, back in the 60s, the Pope uh, at the time, Pablo VI, had a commission that was studying the issue of contraception. And it somehow got into people's minds and got reported and talked about that the church was going to change the uh, longstanding teaching on contraception. Well, what happened? A bunch of people kept reporting this as fact over and over again to different groups of people. Then when it turned out the Pope did not change the teaching on contraception, damage had already been done. A number of people were under the impression that the church was going to change it. Then they were offended and disappointed and uh, basically rejected the faith when the church didn't. So people misreporting the Pope can do a lot, a lot, a lot of damage to the church. And people getting all upset about a change that has not taken place and spreading discontent, they can raise uh, false discontent on the one hand. They can also raise false hopes of people who think that the church is going to change its position on an issue like divorce and remarriage. The church is not going to change its position on an issue like divorce and remarriage. It's in the gospel. It's in canon law. The, ch the Pope can't do it. The Pope in his document says he can't do it. Uh, so to imply that he's doing so uh, can needlessly cause a lot of problems for people. The other two things I tell people to do, if the Pope is wrong, apart from creating the record of all the times he was right, the second one uh, would be to amplify all the good things about what the Pope is doing. The Pope, we're talking about a Pope who does a daily holy hour. We're talking about a Pope who uh, serves the poor and calls people to serve the poor. We're talking about a Pope who carries, he told kids in Africa that he always has two things in his pocket, a rosary and a way of the cross. So why don't we promote the daily holy hour, or at least weekly holy hour for lay people, uh, the daily rosary, uh, a way of the cross every, fri uh, every Friday. Why don't we promote some of the good things that the Pope is doing? Uh, focus the good things he's saying, fo uh, focus on the good things he's doing. And the third thing is fill in the gaps. Jesus Christ didn't say, I name you Peter, and you're the church. He said, you're the rock. He said, on you will build my church. He didn't make him the church. He made the rest of us uh, responsible for evangelization in addition to Peter. Uh, he didn't say, wait for Peter to, to tell you and then do exactly on, only what he says. So if the Pope is emphasizing uh, marriage in a way that you think is leaving out some of the Catholic tradition, then tell people the real Catholic tradition. There's, there's, uh, a lay person has a duty to preach what's in the catechism, what's in the gospel, uh, to preach, I say, to, to evangelize people with the truth as we know it. There's no reason you need to stop doing that. Uh, you need to do it. And rather than in a state of trying to tell people that the Pope is wrong, just tell people the truth and the beauty of the truth uh, the joy you found from your marriage through the ups and downs and deciding to stick it out when it seemed like you shouldn't anymore and how that got turned around. 
share with people the truth in a vigorous way, start a movement of people excited about the indissolubility of marriage, rather than uh, spreading discontent, spreading a false narrative of what the Pope is doing, uh, talk about the truth and the beauty of the truth. So that's my advice, if the Pope is wrong, to do those things. But I don't think we need to think that the Pope is wrong in this case, but we'll get into that. Uh, would you explain a little bit the difference between a question of pastoral ministry and church teaching? Because I think at the roots, this is what we're talking about. The Pope is suggesting that there might be room for addressing how we pastorally journey with people rather than what changing anything about what the church teaches. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, you think of rules-based um, Catholicism, and everybody knows that you can't just look at Catholicism as a series of rules. Uh, then you look at uh, accompaniment in Catholicism, and you know that you can't just accompany people because uh, you can, if you accompany somebody who's walking off a cliff, you're both going to fall off the cliff, right? Um, you accompany them in such a way that you tell them the rules. Uh, so these two things are always in tension, and they're always um, uh, necessary, both. I think the, uh, in fact, I pointed out in the book, I think uh, Jesus's encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well is a great example of uh, the difference between doctrine uh, and pastoral, on the other hand. So he talks to this woman at the well. He doesn't sit down with her and say, tell her, adultery is wrong. You are an adulterer. You're in trouble. No, he tells her, I know what you're looking for. You're looking for living water. I can give you this water always. She says, how is this possible? He introduces her to the God of Israel, uh, as opposed to her Samaritan tradition, and he introduces her to himself. And only then, when she feels the longing in her heart for what he has to offer, does he point out, you have, uh, you're not married to the person you're living with, and you've had several husbands. Um, and she's already gotten to a position of love for him and understanding of him where he no longer has to have a big debate with her about what constitutes adultery and whether her latest union is special or any of that. He, he's already brought her to a place where she has encountered Jesus Christ. She sees what it's for, uh, and, and she sees the beauty of the Lord, and the rules follow after that. You can't leave the rules out, but if you lead with the rules, you know, if you sit down with somebody and say, tell me about the Catholic faith, and you say, first of all, let me tell you why the sin of masturbation is wrong. Well, that... that, that that's something that needs to be told to them at some point, uh, but it's not what you lead with. Too often right now, the Church is very aware of prohibitions and, um, that, that Catholics have, uh, but not aware enough of the yeses that we have, of the beauty of the Catholic faith. So Pope Francis' pontificate, and you know what? Also Benedict's, and also if you read uh, Deus Caritas Est, he starts out with exactly this point, and also John Paul II's. Uh, but all three of these pontificates are about leading with the beauty, truth, and goodness of Jesus Christ and uh, getting to rules. Yeah, you, you have to have rules as in any love relationship. But, you know, if somebody sat me down and said, I propose that you 
give all of your money to April Bindesner and uh, a girl at my college and spend all of your waking hours serving her needs. Uh, and if she has any children that you get up at night and change those children's diapers, I would say, well, I'm not going to do that. That's absurd. I'm not going to submit myself to this yoke of service to April Bindesner. But you put me on a couple of dates with April Bindesner, which I did, and I fall in love with her, which I did, and I marry her, which I did, and then all these rules of what I need to do for April Bindesner aren't uh, yokes that I have to carry in a difficult, burdensome way, but they're yokes of love that I carry uh, with sweetness and light. It's the same with a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I find that a lot uh, in marriage preparation when you're preparing couples that are going to be in a mixed marriage. If you start out with this is what the Catholic Church says you have to do, you've lost one of the partners already. It's when you introduce them to the beauty of the faith and you start showing them why this is important, especially in their partner's faith life, and they come to the realization that this has meaning, then they become ready to appreciate why this is important. But starting with the rules is a recipe for disaster sometimes. Absolutely, yes. Now, that's not to say that you hide the rules in the beginning, and you know this, uh, but it's just it's a it's a question you asked about doctrine and pastoral. It's a pastoral question of how you emphasize what and what you say to the person when. Uh, and you're absolutely right. It, it's a recipe to, for disaster to lead with all the impediments to your journey. Uh, you know, just like if you're going on vacation and you tell somebody this is how much it's going to cost in gas, and this is these are the hassles you're going to get to on the way. And this is the difficulty of driving through Nevada. If you start with that, it looks really burdensome. If you start out with Disneyland is where you're going, and this is what you can do at Disneyland, then the the difficulties of the journey uh, uh, are put into perspective, and you realize that they're worth it. And that's an excellent way of putting that. Uh, One other thing I would like to touch on is we hear so much about Cardinals saying things, uh, asking questions of the Pope. Why is it important for us to remember that there's a difference between the magisterium having a discussion on these issues and the laity forming opinions based on what they're hearing rather than allowing this to work out? Do you have anything uh, that you'd like to share on that? Yeah. Well, so there's, uh, you know, your greatest strength is your greatest weakness in most cases, right? Um, The fact that you're really good at, you know, elephants' greatest strength is their size. Their greatest weakness is their size. You know, their size allows them to do things and tear up trees and go long distances, but it also prevents them from being swift and et cetera. Well, the uh, the greatest strength of our of our age nowadays is the transparency of the church on the one hand and the efficiency of media on the other. Uh, the church has never before has to be transparent about what's happening. Things don't happen behind closed doors as uh, as they once did, uh, they, as much as they once did, at any rate. Uh, it doesn't take forever to hear what's going on as it once did. And those are great things. It's also a great weakness, because 
uh, now, during the Synod, you heard half-formed ideas being coming out of the Synod, and you were, had uh, bloggers renouncing uh, you know, position papers that hadn't even been uh, approved yet. Uh, so the great strength of transparency and communication is also a great weakness, uh, where it gives us an earlier version of what's going on in these cases. Uh, but that's the, what's happening now with the, uh, you know, the Cardinals uh, bringing the dubia uh, with some very, very good theological questions to uh, Pope Francis. And you had another uh, act of, um, uh, of correction this past summer. Uh, these are signs of health in the church. They're signs of, uh, that, that they're signs of hope because you know that these questions are being put to the Pope. Uh, if you read what Cardinal Muller is saying, uh, he was at, at CDF as the head. Uh, he, he's saying some very good things about uh, how Amor Sotici is to be understood. Um, these are great, and this is what the church is for. This is why we have cardinals. Uh, this is the job description of a cardinal. It's in, at least it's part of the job description of the cardinal uh, to bring these kinds of questions and, and to raise these kinds of issues. It's not, however, in the job description of the laity uh, to bring these kinds of questions. It's, not, it's just not us. It's our job to try to uh, promote the evangelization of the church in, in the best way we can. Uh, and for people who it makes you, if it makes you uneasy that cardinals are asking great questions of Pope Francis, it shouldn't. I mean, if it makes you uneasy that Pope Francis might not be altogether perfect in all of his, uh, in everything that he says and does, it shouldn't. Because ever since uh, St. Peter, we've had popes who need a little correction and understanding. We are, we've been a little bit spoiled in our lifetime. We had uh, Pope John Paul II, who I, I believe is going to be a do- named a doctor of the church one day. This guy was just brilliant, and every word that came from his mouth you could take to the bank because he was a, a, a professor uh, before he was a, a pope, and you know a job description where you say things only carefully worded and you say them so that people can write them down and take them to the bank. So his brain was trained to only say true things in precise ways. Benedict was that even more so. Uh, And we had these two brilliant popes who kind of left the impression that anything a pope says, you can take to the bank. Uh, Well, that's not the case for most popes throughout history. Uh, They have not all been minds of the caliber of John Paul II or uh, articulate at, at the caliber of Benedict XVI. And starting with Peter, you had popes who said some uh, unfortunate things who had to be corrected. Uh, you know, you had St. Paul saying, I withstood him to his face about uh, St. Peter, the pope, the first pope. Uh, you had a number of, I wrote an article actually for Inside the Vatican with all the different parallels between Pope Francis and um, St. Peter, uh, which is fascinating if you start looking into it. I mean, we worry that uh, Pope Francis is too into mercy at the expense of uh, pointing out sin. Well, St. Peter's the one who said charity covers up a multitude of sins. So he's the one who put it in that kind of stark formula in the in the New Testament itself, uh, which means, which is exactly the, what we worry about in Pope Francis. We worry about some of uh, Pope Francis's um, 
uh, he talked about coprophilia and coprophagia, which are uh, terms from dog behavior about animals that are uh, too accustomed to feces or too uh, desirous of feces. Well, you had St. Peter said the dog returns to its own vomit and a bathed cell returns to wallowing in the mire. You had exactly the same kind of language come out of Peter that can't, comes out of Francis. And it goes on and on. Um, you know, the, Pope Francis uh, is often very condemnatory in his language of riches in a way that's unsettling to us. Uh, but you have in the book of Acts, chapter 5, St. Peter basically sending two people to their deaths for withholding money from the church. So you even have this kind of uh, mercy on the one hand and condemnation of economic sins on the other in Peter. Anyway, it's fascinating to look at those two figures. It's as if the New Testament knew that we'd have issues accepting Pope Francis as Pope. And so they put counterexamples, so counterexamples, the Holy Spirit put counterexamples in the New Testament to show us, no, this is this is within the realm of what you can expect from a pope, uh, somebody who needs to be um, corrected occasionally, somebody who has a, a good heart and has wonderful things to say. They both talk about the devil a lot, too. Uh, but at any rate, um, this is what you can expect from a pope, and we've known that ever since St. Peter. Well, and the thing is, again, you made the point that, you know, we've St. John Paul the Great was pope for a quarter of a century, and then we had Pope Benedict, and both of them, you know, over the lifetime of a lot of us Catholics, that's all we knew. And we weren't familiar with some of the other popes that were more people popes that didn't have quite the restraint in speech that, you know, two professors have. And so we're sort of shocked. Hey, how can somebody, you know, that's Pope, just speak as, you know, he's talking to just anybody. And Pope Francis yeah, is a people you know Pope. If he, if he hired me to be his, um, uh, you know, to, to give him advice on <laughs> what to say, I would advise against most things, <laughs> a lot of things that he writes that he says. So don't get me wrong. I've, I've, I'm not exactly... I see that it's within the realm of what we were told about in the New Testament. It's probably not the direction I would uh, propose to him, but you know what? I, nobody put me in charge of that, and uh, the, the Cardinal certainly didn't choose me uh, to give the Church advice, and they did him. And so it's a matter of trying to see what... You know, Americans are having the same issue now with a president who... Well, and I think Pope Francis, in his um, uh, willingness to be indiscreet, is far, far, far from Donald Trump. But we have a president who is too willing to be indiscreet, uh, and many people see a certain uh, genuineness and honesty about that that they find refreshing. Obviously, enough people to have voted for him to become president in the first place think that, you know what? We need somebody who's going to tell us exactly how they're feeling. So he seems to be, for better or worse, a pope of our times, a pope who's not scripted uh, and careful, which I personally would prefer, but a pope who's a little bit uh, uh, more uh, indiscreet, more genuine and open uh, is the way Americans nowadays see it. Uh, And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. 
again, it's not the choice I would have made, but nobody asked my opinion. And so I'm in a position of accepting and not deciding whether or not it was the right thing to do. And I think this is something, as we're nearing the end of the interview, I wanted to touch on also, we have such a polarized society that people choose sides and won't budge. And I think, uh, couldn't you make the case that in this too, people have picked a side we're for or against what Pope Francis does, and they're not willing to see how it plays out? Yeah, unfortunately, that's what we do. And I say unfortunately not from a position of I'm a better person than that, because I do exactly the same thing. And I had my doubts about Pope Francis. I had grave doubts. In fact, it was very difficult for me to write the book because I was, um, it, it, it was personally, what was what I was hearing was personally painful to me. You know, um, I won't go on about particular issues. Oh, well, sure I will. There, there was a rabbit's comment that he said in Philippines that uh, as a father of nine children, uh, I was personally offended by. So I, I'm very understanding of people who have uh, an, an issue with the Pope. But I'm so grateful that I wrote the book because it helped me realize that, for one thing, the rabbit's comment was not nearly as um, as, um, as as awful as people uh, thought, and the context of that is in the book. Uh, but I, it made me realize that what our position, what our role is as lay people, is to sit down, read what the Pope really said, try to understand it as best as possible. Uh, do what John John the Twenty Third used to say. The only way he could sleep was say, "Look, uh, God, I'm going to leave the church in your hands. I'm going to be gone for a little while, and I'll come back." Well, I think we all kind of need to do that. We need to say, "Look, God, you didn't put me in charge of a diocese. I'm not even good at running the pro-life group at my parish. I personally run the. Uh, I, I help with confirmation at my parish. I'm not even good at, at that. So that's probably why God didn't put me in charge of the whole church." And since he put other people in charge of the whole church, I'm going to leave it all in his hands. Uh, not from a uh, you know, not in a way that sticks my head in the sand. I'm going to look at all these issues, but in a way where ultimately I realize uh, I'm not the one he chose. Francis is, <laughs> and uh, my bishop and the body of bishops. And I think over time, what you'll see 20 years from now, more than you'll see next year, is the reason that this happened. I think there's a lot of issues with regard to marriage that need to be sorted out. And I think the fact that we have Pope Francis raising these troubling issues, even in ways that we wouldn't do it, uh, ultimately is going to be given more light, uh, the healing light of Jesus Christ, and it's going to bring it closer to the gospel. We'll see that in 20 years more clearly than we'll see next year. But I'm certain that in 20 years, this will be looked at as a moment where wounds were exposed to healing light and were healed. I want to thank you very much for being on the show. This is the end of our interview, and I must say the time just flew by. But thank you very much for joining us. Again, we were talking to Tom Hoops, uh, the author of What Pope Francis Really Said. And uh, next week, uh, Gene Wilhelm will be your host on the Red Sea Roundup. Tune in for that. If you're trying to decide how much to share your time, talent, and treasure with the people of God, remember, always round up.